This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Shake them ropes with the usual crew. I'm Jeff Hawkins along with Chris Novembrino. Rest in power to the true king of rock and roll. When Richard Wayne Pettibone, a.k.a. Little Richard, passed away at the age of 87. He is one of my favorite all-time musicians. Uh, I'm going to wax a bit nostalgic. I'm also Wrestling Connection. He was a celebrity guest star at WrestleMania 10 and also the... Uh, the uh <laughs> the muse if you will for one johnny b bad but no i am a huge little richard fan chris what is your favorite little richard song that isn't like one of the you know tutti frutti or one of the big cuts one of the big oh man that's that's rough right there because i i is uh keep on knocking considered a big cut of his um, that's a little bit more obscure. I, I, I'm going to go with that for sure. Because, because for me, what I love about, and I was, I was listening to a lot of Little Richard before I came on the air. It, it's just with like Chuck Berry, you can be lazy and play his songs. They're very laid back there, you know, like uh, Ryan along my automobile, dun, 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 dun. you know, it's very kind of a laid back with like, keep on knocking. It's, it's a driving snare and cymbal driving piano driving sax you you can't be seated to play those types of things you can just you can almost hear the sweat of the band trying to keep up with little richard and and it's just it's it's just in your face hardcore just banging on instruments and screaming type of rock and roll and i absolutely love it yeah i'm a big fan of that like early 1950s first wave of rock and roll Mm -hmm. from the south as you were saying with almost that punk rock energy where there's a there's a real physicality required to play that and and in that iteration of rock and roll it was like physicality being banged into the piano which is kind of fun and also a thing that doesn't happen anymore also they really have that cool rock and roll experience of the 50s you'd need to be in a venue that was small enough where a person could really be banging on the piano and you hear it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, doing it in a big hall. Like when they, when rock and roll started tour in the early sixties, it was a problem for some of these piano guys because they go to, you know, big halls and they would do well, but it's not the same act at that point. And he was subversive too. I mean, every song of his is about sex. It's, 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 there's nothing in, in, in the little Richard early canon. And, and it's so weird because you know, he was raised Pentecostal and, you know, he's very, I mean, it's almost like a prince. And he ended situation. up returning back to that too. Um, oh, he, he never in his late life, he, Yeah. Oh yeah. But in his late life, like, um, you know, he was able to tour less and he was uh, kind of more handicapped. Um, and he was basically just doing stuff at his church. Yeah. Well, like 86 was his, I think was probably his last album. I, I, I'd have to check up on that. And that's where, uh, 
you ever saw the old old it's 86 uh down and out in beverly hills he had a he had a small co-starring role in that where he was basically like why all these white people get security and i don't he's absolutely great at but he has a song on it called grace great gosh almighty but his the album is called little friend and it's mostly a gospel album because his mom had just died and he had promised he'd do a gospel album before he left but that great gosh almighty is writ- co-written by him and billy preston the fifth beetle which is fascinating it's it's not the you know it sounds like a very synth drum machine by way of a little richard song though it's it, it you can hear the little richard in it but it's just way too overproduced and that's the with the thing. exception of link ray none of the 50s rocker guys do anything that's particularly interesting after 1980 no that oh god that's very true i mean they're all living off laurels and things like that like i mean link i love i love fats domino yeah no link ray's really interesting to check out because his act and his style of guitar playing and his swagger and everything ends up porting really nicely into punk rock and so he's able to have a really nice second act um from like 79 like 84 85 where he's like touring and his stuff still feels fresh and he still looks pretty good unlike some of the other aging rockers of that vintage um but yeah most of the other guys like i mean Hell, even Jefferson Airplane, by the time they become Starship in the 80s, it's like, Oof. whoa. Yeah, and, and Little Richard, I mean, most of his songs are just 12-bar blues driving rock style. That's, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, verse A, verse A again, verse B, transition, and then back to the next, and then to the next verse. It's, it's very, I, I, I mean, it's, it, it's simple. Well, or if they have bridges, they just go to the forechord. Like, the, the bridge is the most basic version of a bridge. Well, every, every Little Richard song, the bridge is him screaming and driving saxophone solo, pretty much. It's, it's, you know, it's awesome. And it's one of those things where I, I think it's Tony Kornheiser who says, you know what, there's nothing wrong with only having one song if it's a great song. And do it. I mean, but he has different ways of presenting it. Unlike, to me, again, Chuck Berry, who is often held as – you know, you were really coming in on Chuck Berry in a way. I'm gonna, I'm going to have to take up for him at a certain point here because no, I am I, Chuck no, Berry. I'm not, I, I, no, I like Chuck Berry, but it's like one of those things where it's like after, after no particular place to go, it's almost. I mean, look, he had my dingaling. He has, uh, you know, Sweet Little Sixteen. I mean, like he has a bunch of hits. Like if you get a Chuck Berry greatest hits album. You get you start counting them that are like ones that are actually hits, and you get up to seven, eight, nine hits. Like that's a lot of hits for a single artist. Well, they're, they're, okay, I think I know what it might be. It might be a little bit of my subconscious coming in because there's like a there's a there's a triumvirate in this in this over over however you say it in this genre where it's Chuck, Little Richard, and Jerry Lee Lewis. And of those, the only one who wasn't really a pervy creep to our knowledge is Little Richard. Um, yeah, and every song he did was about the sex. least eccentric of the three. Yes, but yeah, like, yeah, but but all three of them kind of sexually minded. Um, you know, particularly like sexually minded sorts of characters. I, I guess the difference again, though, between Barry and Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richards is I just think that Barry has more hits. Where you know uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, it's um it, it's uh, great balls of fire right um yeah, and jerry lee lewis pretty much stole little richard's act <laughs> yeah well, that, was, that was that was the next place i was going to go it's like a lot of his act is basically just little richard's act and little richard is tutti fruity he's what, what, what's another song I, he's long, got long t- tall long tall sally oh, so uh like, gonna have some fun tonight uh uh lucille 
Okay, Lucille, yeah, yeah. Lucille's, Lucille's a banger, man. Just that piano. Well, yeah, but so, so is Maybelline by Chuck Berry. But, yeah, 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 no, no. Uh, Berry just has a really deep catalog. Um, and he also has, like, some really kind of interesting explorations that you don't really get out of Jerry Lee Lewis or Little Richards. Like, um, Chuck Berry has a really interesting version. I don't know if it's great, but it's interesting of How High the Moon. Yeah. which has a lot more changes than your standard rock and roll 12 bar blues format. And it's interesting to see his guitar playing have to go through something that requires a little bit more uh, music knowledge and a little bit more music theory. I'm just going to say, if you're having a bad day or you need to pick me up, little Richard, that's, I mean, you oh, yeah, cannot, no, for sure. you cannot Dude, like, sit still energy. for a little Richard song. I think just that entire early era of rock is it's really interesting and really fun and exciting to see how much energy can be made with, with so little. Yeah. Uh, I've been on a, uh, you know, Vince Taylor, are you familiar with Vince Taylor? No, I am not. Okay. Uh, he was, uh, <laughs> he's a really interesting biography. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds of him. He's a total drugs ruined this guy's career, but he made a massive impression on like all the European rockers in the late fifties, early sixties. And like people like Joe Strummer as well. Um, probably his biggest hits a song called shaking all over. Um, which if you've ever listened to the who's live at Leeds, you ever heard that album? Oh yeah. Have yeah. I ever heard of the who's live at Leeds? Okay. <laughs> they do, they do a cover shaking all over. That's a okay, Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he has he has a number of great. Have you ever heard of the? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because it's possibly one of the one of the more famous live albums in classic rock. You, you no, you, you say that, but like, man, I have talked to a lot of people who are not particularly like they don't. Are they under they the age of thirty? Yeah, I mean, okay, to a, but but even some are over the age of thirty. Like, I I don't think live at Leeds. Live at Leeds is critically acclaimed, but I don't think Live at Leeds is really um, appreciated by the mass audience in the same way as like, I don't know, like Kiss Alive was in the 70s. Or, you know, some of those other albums, like those live albums are quote unquote called classic, but they were really just big volume sellers and weren't like, like real. Frampton Comes Alive? Yes, right, exactly. Where that's not like it's not like Peter Frampton just killed it that night. Yeah. Uh, or even that that was even all one show, right? Like whereas the Who Live at Leeds is a band at the peak of their powers, just killing it for not just through all the covers and like originals and stuff, but then they also go through a large medley of like the Tommy set too. I mean, and it's really well engineered, and their sound is really great, and they they have a really really good tone. Like, no, that, like that's a it's an all timer great live album. That's not just like a band playing a song well live. Rip it up, good golly, Miss Molly. Oh, good golly, Miss Molly is a big one for him too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, rip it up. Yeah, good golly, Miss Molly. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff ends up, uh, you know, kind of popping its way into the vernacular too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, the tutti frutti. Like people know his hooks. Like, yeah. they know his little phraseologies and stuff. And Chuck Berry was good at that, too, you know, motivating and things of that sort. I, I think it's just a natural progression from, from you know, outlaw rock to becoming corporate rock. And it just, you know, it all, it all kind of, over time, you know, everybody's used for a commercial or something to that effect. So, you know, the, the, uh, the time capsule of what it was diminishes like that yeah those record companies were essentially like much closer to small businesses in, in the 1950s those like yeah. Yeah, chess records was essentially a small business that did distributed stuff nationally um whereas you know eventually you get into like 
Capital Records and these international record companies. And that does, that's just a different business dynamic and that yields a different product. All right. I know people are now like going, man, when are they going to stop talking about music and get to wrestling? Uh, I'm sorry. People love length. I know this. I read about it. <laughs> Look, if we were, if we were the flagship, we'd go another hour and a half about this and then go, well, we don't have any time for the WWE review. Get that <laughs> are we like Shane Douglas on frontier martial arts wrestling? Have you seen that clip? <laughs> I, I a long a while ago I think. So Douglas is doing this promo and it's so agonizingly long. It's like the nineties. He's got fancy <laughs> next to him. It's so long. They needed to get back to it. So does Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling Japanese company? It was they weren't going to dub it all. Like they, they they were not going to take the time to translate and subtitle all this shit. So they just fast forward through it. On tape. They don't even edit it. It gets fast-forwarded. <laughs> I'm going to ask you an esoteric question, Chris, to start off our wrestling um, discussion, if you will. Uh, only because it's weird because the, 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 uh, the controversy du jour right now is, of course, Tom Segura, comedian, basically crapping on wrestling fans. So that's lighting up Twitter right now. But I, I have a, just a, a, a deeper question, and it has a second part to it. <clears throat> Is wrestling as an art form, much like classical music or big band, just remotely outdated? Or is it Vince McMahon's version that is turning people off because there is no version that is not Vince McMahon's wrestling right now? I think it's much closer to the latter. And so what I think is happening is that Vince has been the dominant paradigm of wrestling presentation where we still think of WrestleMania and the product that Vince under the flag of WWE has been putting out. And that is a super dated, super backwards looking. And more importantly than anything, it is so obsessed with, with the exception of the belts, a consistency of presentation. The lighting is always the same. And, Vince's presentation of WWE's product is really dated. And it is the dominant paradigm of what wrestling is perceived as, especially by normal people, right? So I was really excited, you know, six, seven, eight years ago to be covering things like Lucha Underground because Lucha Underground was a totally different style of wrestling, right? Um, and a totally different presentation. It was much closer to a Tarantino-esque noir style. But the ratings on Lucha Underground were, like, pathetic, right? Like, they were, like, 100,000 and less. A great show. Loved the show, especially at its high points. But it was a fresh presentation that nobody was seeing. So a guy like Tom Zagura, um, I'm not super familiar with him. What's he still seeing? He's still seeing WWE. Maybe he's seeing TNA. If he's seeing TNA, well, he, he would, well, he's he's just saying that all wrestling fans are. Um, he used he used a term we can no longer use, uh, starting with R. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, fans tend to run a kind of a wide gamut, especially socio-politically. If you really kind of want to get into the nitty gritty of it, well, um, I just think, I just think. Look, I think a lot of people were like, oh, upset about, but it's like. Look, Chris, if I clown you for your fandom of Deep Space Nine, just because I don't like it, 
are, are you going to be really concerned with trying to talk me into liking it? Or are you just, I don't, yeah, I don't know you? why I would try to yeah. like make somebody like a thing that I, I don't understand why I'd be trying to persuade somebody to like a thing. Like you're either going to like, Fugazi when you hear them or you're not, right? I'm not going to be able to sit together and logic you into thinking Fugazi is a great band. At the end of the day, you either like it or you don't like it. There's not a if A then B argument for it. Um, and, and I think it's the same way with John Cena, right? At the end of the day, you either like John Cena or you find John Cena's character and the jean shorts and the neon colors to be very 1998 and super dated. And no one's going to sit there and make a logical argument to you and persuade you into liking John Cena, right? You're either going to think he's cool or you're not going to think he's cool. I am going to go, I think it's the former. I just think wrestling may in many ways have outlived its usefulness in today's media. Um, I mean, it was a type of programming you could put on like a UHF channel that was very, very cheap. I, I, I still like wrestling. Don't get I me mean, wrong. That's I just, I just think in terms of mainstream acceptance, I think it's gone the way of the dodo. I think it's one of those things where... No, no, I think it gets back to what we were talking about with the old records and everything. So you're looking at the way that those old records were produced. Like I was talking about with chess records, like how that company works. Some they were records. recorded directly to the record. It wasn't right, right. They were written. Well, no, I'm not even talking about the, like the, the method of production, right? I'm talking about the means of distribution, right? These are small businesses essentially operating on a national level. And if you want to look at territory style wrestling, that product, the stuff that we really like from the 70s and 80s, is much closer to a small business. Bill Watts is a horribly flawed small businessman. Um, Dusty Rhodes, horribly flawed small businessman. Herb Abrams, like the, the worst version of this, horribly flawed small businessman. But the product that those type of people put together is much closer to a raw, gritty even like the Dallas Sportatorium, you know, Global Wrestling Federation, like that kind of rawness is much closer to what people wanted. And to your point, they had a network, UW or UHF channels and that sort of thing where you could get that out on. Now, I think the way you do that in the modern days, you do something kind of like what NWA is doing, where you distribute this stuff over YouTube or you distribute it over Netflix, something like that. But um, I think the means of distribution has to change with the times in order to stay current. And Vince, I mean, why does wrestling feel dated? Because who was watching USA under the age of like 40? Yeah, I, I think there's something to the big arena aspect of it that's really, I mean, look, it's been in big arenas for two decades now. We're never getting away from that. And the rawness that you described when we watch wrestling that both you and I kind of gravitate towards but um here here's going to be my follow-up question are we going to look back on this era of wrestling and think man what an opportunity was blown here because absolutely that's because, what i was saying at the start of this that there was an opportunity to capture an audience with something new 
Um, and the problem with WWE and to a lesser extent, AEW's presentation and approach to this is certainly, I think the, the criticism carries for both brands um, for at least the first six weeks here. They were both clinging to normalcy and thinking, oh, I guess at some point we'll be able to have packed houses again in the next couple of months, which really did seem crazy. I mean, like, you know, the most generous estimates right now, we're just talking about getting people back into businesses and that sort of thing with reduced capacity. So big arena shows are probably, you know, several months away here. And AEW and WWE organizationally were not real about that. And so what they were trying to do is produce a product that was as close to normal with the hope that maybe they just get back to normal. Whereas I think doing stuff like the Boneyard match was, was much closer. And it's not like I love the Boneyard concept or whatever, but like even the Bray Wyatt match at WrestleMania, that was much closer to what would have been relevant. It goes back to my critique of WrestleMania where they didn't even remotely try to acknowledge COVID-19 or try to do like anything charity related during COVID-19. Um, they just were like, it's too big for one night. This is the best WrestleMania ever. That's why we're breaking it into two nights, which we all knew it wasn't. They lived in denial of the moment. And instead of embracing it and being relevant with the times, which going back to the, the successful era of WWF, Vince with the rock and wrestling stuff, you're bringing in Cindy Lauper, you're bringing in uh, Mr. T, bringing in Muhammad Ali, people that were connected to the culture. And that's what makes you part of the culture. That's what gets Hulk Hogan incorporated into the culture. Um, right, you know, having right. Sergeant Slaughter on G.I. Joe makes wrestling more of the fabric of society. Macho Man selling Slim Jims to people in the late 80s, early 90s. I, I mean, that sounds silly, but like you'd see Slim Jim in the damn gas station all the time and you'd go, snap into it. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's how you become interwoven into the fabric of society. So your audience numbers, Raw, 1.68 million. SmackDown, a little under or over 2 million. Uh, your Wednesday night, quote-unquote, war, AEW, 732,000. NXT, 663,000. Numbers are down all across the board for professional wrestling, um, despite it being really the only live entertainment out there. I think cord cutting in the first quarter had a lot to do with it as well because people. Yeah. But I think if people wanted to seek out these shows and I mean, the, the other part is, so the ratings are down and with the cord cutting and nefarious means that's going to reduce some of your viewership. Sure. Yeah. I get yeah. that. But the chatter is down. Yeah. The yeah. energy is down. Yeah. The yeah. cultural saturation is down. Some of that is squishy. Some of that's feelings wise, but where the discussion in the discourse is seems to be very much in line with the ratings. It's everyone chuckling at wrestling with no fans. Um, I, I keep going back to that moment. It, I, it didn't seem to make that much of an impression on other people, but seeing all the normia sometimes derisively referred to as the blue checks on, on Twitter, but these would be people much closer to the non-wrestling fan than the, re the wrestling fan watching wrestling in those first few weeks with, with kind of confusion and mortification at the John Cena Bray Wyatt thing. I thought it said so much about where the product is right now. John Cena feels like a really dated character. He's a student jean shorts and Bray Wyatt's a ridiculous cartoon character. And the whole skit was totally absurd and they were doing it and acting like they were playing to an audience when there was no audience there. All right, enough of this heavy crap. 
I'm sorry, but like, no, you know, you're, right. you're exactly right. I, I, if you were going to grade this like a TV show, um, which is you know, a thing you and I used to talk about a couple of years ago here. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the merits, this is a terrible freaking TV show. Yes. It, it's just a poorly constructed on the fundamentals TV show with bad character development and stuff. I mean, I, like we've been ribbing me about the Deep Space Nine thing, but why do I keep watching that show? Because I find the character development and the character arcing to be far more satisfactory than character arcing on wrestling. I'm not expecting it to be at the same tier, but my God, the storylines get dropped all the time. You feel stupid for paying attention watching WWE. I, I, I can't argue with that, so I'm going to... And you also think that people who pay attention too closely are kind of stupid. <laughs> all right. Before we get into other news, we have to we have to do something that we can play around with and 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 mock. So here we go in, in our news segment. WWE and A and E have reached a deal on a television show. Here's here's the pitch, Chris. In each episode, WWE Stephanie McMahon and Paul Triple H Levesque will lead a team of collectors, WWE superstars, and legends as they investigate, negotiate, bid, and travel across the country to hunt down and reclaim some of the most elusive WWE collectibles. Throughout history, WWE's action-packed storylines have spawned iconic, one-of-a-kind memorabilia, most of which is lost in attics, hidden in boxes, or even claimed by competitors. Guided by McMahon and Levesque, the series will unearth these rare items in hopes of preserving and sharing the legacy behind the memorable moments in WWE history. Episodes will feature exclusive WWE footage as well as unprecedented access to WWE archives, which holds more than 10,000 rarities, including Andre the Giant's custom boots, Vince McMahon's cement Phil Corvette, The Undertaker's caskets, and more. Over the course of 10 one-hour episodes, WWE Superstar and Legends will give viewers a unique look into WWE history as they seek out the missing treasures that have left a lasting mark on pop culture. I think WWE really thinks they could build a museum out of this crap they're keeping. As opposed to it being crap they're keeping, but... Nobody wants to see this in a museum presentation. What you want is to get that... And honestly, here's what I think it really is, Jeff. I think it is a clever way of getting a camera crew to shoot and document this like a TV show for a thing they will ultimately just sell to super fan collectors. Yeah, this is, this is Antiques Roadshow meets WWE. That's all this is. Some Some poor sap is going to think that his chair from battleground 2017 or 16 is worth something and it's not you know i you know there are some rarities out there like programs and tickets and stuff but i just i I don't know i don't i don't think you'll you'll get some custom and not custom belts but like old belts that we didn't think we'd ever see again right like uh here is uh, the old Intercontinental Championship from 1987 NWA. I'm just like making up a title here. Uh, you know, it was only used in three shows. Everyone always wondered what happened to it, but here we got it today. And like, then you have some old wrestlers talking about it and probably just bullshitting the stories. Like, yeah. In the, in the uh, season finale, the SWAT team and, <laughs> and Stephanie McMahon go to Conrad Thompson's mansion to grab all the memorabilia he's been hoarding. <laughs> this is, this honestly gets back to, I, I, I mean, this was supposed to be the light segment, but I think this gets back to the other like recurring problem um, is that the, the product, there's just too much of it. And mm-hmm. one of the dividends of oversaturating the market with crappy product 
is that people ultimately think your product is crappy. Um, And even when you have good matches sandwiched in there, like there's 11 hours of, are we at 11 right now or like nine? Uh, There's a lot of hours of WWE TV every week. And there is on any given week, maybe 30 to 90 minutes of actually good wrestling in there that you have to know where to look for in order to find it. And otherwise you're watching a lot of stuff that's not quite passable. Yeah, I just don't see a lot of memorabilia other than personal effects because the company never really put out anything great. It was just crap that people would buy. You know, it was merchandising. It's like that scene in Spaceballs. You know, the merchandising. Yeah, like, does anybody really want like uh, you know Mick Foley's old striped beat up dress shirt thing that he sweated all over? Some people do, I guess. Some people do, but like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just, I don't see that being a particularly compelling episode of television. Uh, Roman Reigns gave an interview to TMZ. Um, you know, this, this is so, like, the deletion of Roman Reigns and the erasure of Roman Reigns is fascinating to me. Go go into it, sir. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just leading into all your rants today, so please feel free. So, if you haven't been following this, guys, WWE has been doing stealthy edits in recent weeks where Roman moments are being removed from canon. For example, Seth Rollins winning the title on a cash-in at WrestleMania. Like, Roman is almost entirely absent from that entire thing. Now, the, the affirmative argument is, oh, well, they're, you know, saving Roman. I um, want to make sure that he doesn't, like, look bad in those moments. But, like, I mean, it's Roman Reigns. So, you know, John Cena lost a thousand times along the way, but it didn't really matter because you won every big one. Um, Roman Reigns a little bit different, but it's interesting because this does seem to be associated with Roman electing to stay home right now because he views himself as particularly at risk because he's had cancer multiple times in the last five years. Um, and WWE took this posture of, but we would never hold it against anyone. And I, I mean, even, you know, you go, Vince is sort of a callous student. He doesn't believe in people getting sick or whatever. And I could see him maybe holding it against someone who was otherwise a healthy individual or someone we kind of understood to be an otherwise healthy individual, just playing it safe. Vince would have a contempt for that. You would assume that Vince would have sympathy that for someone who had cancer, right? Multiple cancer, multiple times, and that you built entire angles around, and he does your Make-A-Wish stuff, and it'd be really bad if your Make-A-Wish guy died of COVID-19 because he was very at risk and you kept demanding that he worked. Like the optics of this are absolutely nightmarish, but it sure seems like the company is erasing Roman Reigns right now. Um, What do you think of this? What do you make of this? I view it slightly different. I don't view it as Vince being callous. I view it as how Vince views the product is happy, fun, good time for all in the family you know, don't have, you know, you know, if, if you're having negative emotions, it's for the effect of getting a storyline over versus, versus having a negative view on the product. So I just think he's decided, ooh, you know, leukemia, that might bring some people down. That might be a real downer for some people. And we want to give people hope. You know, we're doing the make-a-wish stuff right now. We don't want people to feel down about, you know, terminal disease and stuff like that so we're just gonna we're just gonna eliminate that memory of of roman reigns now trust me i can go the more cynical route and go well out of sight out of mind 
And if he's not going to come back for a while, then, you know, we just write him out of the stories and write him out of canon. And then when, if he can come back, oh, look, it's a great surprise. And we'll add in all those scenes again. I could see that, but I think it's more the former. See, whereas I think the, the argument that they're at minimum hedging their bets is stronger now that you've made it. Um, I, I don't think it's – if they just wanted to not talk about leukemia, they would just not talk about leukemia. If they j- didn't want to talk about leukemia, they wouldn't talk about Make-A-Wish. Now, I, I really don't – especially with Connor's Cure and all the other things that they've done along the way here, um, I, I don't see a great argument for that. But I, I think it's really interesting. If he needed to stay away for a while – one way of keeping this guy who you've built, insofar as you have a star that you've built in the last decade, it's Roman Reigns. Okay, but um, let, me, let me push back on you here because I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but they don't present Make-A-Wish as reminding you of that these kids have deadly diseases. They, they push Make-A-Wish as look at the great things WWE has done and they're the heroes of this story. Well, they're giving hope to sick children is the subtext. Right, they don't right, sit there and go, right, look at the sicky Sickerson. Like, like, but, like, they also take the sickest kids in the ward and give them professional wrestling gimmicks so that they can feel strong. The subtext is that they are weak, and we go and give them our strength. No, 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 no. I oh, okay, that, that is not the subtext of Make-A-Wish. Okay. No, I think, I think the subtext is, look how, I mean, they're, but they're not telling the kids stories, really. They're not, they're not d- going deep in into their conditions and stuff. It's, it's look how great, it's, see, I, I, I get your point. I just think it's far more vapid. It's just marketing. It's not anything. I don't think that their heart is in it. But if you watch the packages, they do talk about the diseases. They, it is all about okay, building yeah. up these kids and strengthening them. So, like, no, I, I, I'm surprised you would just dismiss that outright. And I don't think that <laughs> you just review that. I would never, I would never demand you to go and watch their Make-A-Wish product. No, I may have to because I was – no, because admittedly I was, I was, yeah, yeah, I the only reason you would watch it is because of this – this discussion now, but I assure you, like when they when they bring the kids out on stage and stuff, and they explain the gimmicks and uh, the the Connor the Crusher stuff, like that is they talk about the disease. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, they they definitely do. So no, I fast you know, forwarded through a lot of that. On, on well, yeah, no, it's not good. It's like the Susie G COVID stuff. I, I get. I I I know whatever we review it. Like I I look at those segments. I go, great. I can fast forward through this. I, it's not that I don't care. I have a heart of stone or anything. It's just they're generic. And not great. And I also captioned a bunch of them back in the day. So I know exactly what they're going to say about these things. Um, I don't know, man. I, like, I, I think that there is some sort of fissure between Roman and the company. Because I don't think you'd need to take this hedging approach if you, as the company, felt really solid that you were going to be able to resume this relationship with Roman Reigns here on the other side of COVID-19. Um, I, I think the fact that they've taken this hedging posture, rather than just trying to find a way to make Roman relevant in absentia, uh, it says something about the relationship between Roman Reigns and the company. And finally, in our in our news segment, uh, Last Ride, a documentary about uh, Undertaker, which I believe they're basically trying to capture a lot they're, of... They're just ripping ri- ri- off the last dance, right? A little bit. I, I, I don't think it's... See, I have a very skeptical view of the last dance because I, I view it because because of Michael Jordan's creative control in it. I don't think they're ever going to really make him look that bad. I, I think they, 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 they tap dance around it, but I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of a Michael Jordan reclamation project. And I kind of feel the same way about this. I, I feel like it's going to be history, but not 
all the history. So you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, no, I, I'm well, look, any of those documentaries are what they are doing is they are capturing the stories that the storytellers tell and presenting those stories uncritically from a narration perspective at most the editor will create challenges to certain points of contention by having one person tell a story one way and then you kind of rush them on it up and you have someone else tell the story the other way but then it will still leave it at but which one is true i guess we'll never know um whereas you know a narrator slash fact checker slash editor could come in and answer that question if they felt, felt yeah it's, so. a, it's a little history written by the winners type thing because it's always it's always yeah there's a slight deviation from it but we're really taking this guy's word for it at the time like like in, in the last dance the uh the horace grant stuff where it's like i wasn't leaking to anybody that, that could have been anybody type of thing and it's like everybody's like yeah it was horace who was leaking stuff yeah, no, I mean, like, that's that's a, been a critique of mine about the documentary format for a very long time. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a tricky position as, as the editor or the presenter. How involved do you yourself get, in, get involved in the documentary? And there's certainly times where the, the producer gets too involved in the documentary and it kind of, you know, it's a if spinal the producer, tap. If the producer is one of the subjects, you get the hell out of there because you just go. You're not <laughs> like Marty DeBerge and Spinal Tap, right? Like, you know, uh, you know, that's sort of the joke there with DeBerge. He makes the movie too much about himself, but it's like about Spinal Tap. Um, but, but then there's also the contrasting thing where the – presenter is totally absent so it sort of has this like voice of god effect and also people the storytellers are able to just sort of say things uncritically and unchallenged and you get the impression that the thing you are watching oh that must be a fact then because no one's challenging it i it's, was in bed by midnight when i went to atlantic city at night okay sure mike yeah gotcha <laughs> yeah you're never going to get to the bottom of jordan's gambling problem in the no. night right? yeah yeah no certainly not i would never expect last dance to be a, an accurate portrayal of that so where do we want to start do we want to start with the preview of money in the bank or do we want to start with the wednesday night stuff let's do money in the bank let's do it okay so for the main roster wrestling stuff uh suggestions from me this week the one thing that i loved that eight man tag on smackdown on friday i was just mad as hell that the guys who that is the best lucha house party has looked in ages they were fantastic in that match it was it was a eight man between the uh lucha house party and the new day versus the uh uh forgotten sons and uh and miz and morrison and it was it was a fun match. I mean, even you know the Forgotten Sons had some good stuff in there, but the Lucha House Party was just bringing it. And then and then of course, <laughs> and then of course, Lince Dorado has to take the pin. I'm just just like, well, then what's the use of that? What is the use of having these guys look that great and then looking like geeks at the end? I I just uh, I don't know. But uh, yes, Money in the Bank is this Sunday. We have had a couple of matches added to the card. Uh, on the pre-show, we'll have a match between Jeff Hardy and Cesaro. And I believe we'll have a second match on the pre-show between R-Truth and MVP. Uh, Chris, got any uh, picks for winners on either of those? I'm going to say MVP beats R-Truth. And uh, what was the other match? Jeff Hardy and Cesaro. I'm going to say Cesaro beats Jeff Hardy. 
going to disagree. I am. I, I think. Uh, I think both the other team guys win possibly by DQ. I'm maybe Hardy loses. There's something weird. They're, they're, they did this interview last night with Hardy, but in between, and it was a bad interview. Jeff Hardy is just. They're just doing everything. He's not being honest. He's being that fake honest, like. Uh, in it like i'm here to have one last run in wwe and i've overcome my issues and you know just kind of that i man his baby face character as like a straight i just really feel it like he, yeah he, it's so uncompelling man he he's and he's had a long time to really refine that and you'd always think with with jeff hardy <laughs> baby face fan favorite they'd find a way to do it but but really it, it is He's so reminiscent of Sting in a lot of ways. Um, Sting, you know, especially when Sting went under the crow makeup, where like he wasn't really any good at promos after that. Uh, not for a very long time. Not until he saw the Batman movies. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of got a little bit better at promos. But, you know, at that point, he was you know, fairly advanced in age. <laughs> Hardy is Hardy is great look. Absolute garbage promos his entire career. Well, during this promo, they're cutting to Seamus in the back watching TV going, why are we watching this? We've heard it already. I'm like, are they channeling me? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it looks, they're setting up this Jeff Hardy says uh, Seamus thing. And I get the feeling with Sami Zayn kind of being out of the mix for right now that they may just pivot back to Cesaro and Seamus being aligned with each other. So I think Seamus somehow gets involved with this. Oh, okay. So, the, so then the other way of doing this is that this is the vehicle for reuniting the bar. Maybe. I, I don't think it's going to be a reuniting necessarily as a team. But until we, deci- until we decide what's going on with Sami Zayn, I, I think because they've aligned these two now with Corbin as well. I mean, that's kind of been the story and they've kind of dropped Sami Zayn for the time being because it's like, okay, we only have a limited number of people going around. So so I could see it kind of being like a loose partnership but not really as a unit type of thing. There is some intrigue. I mean, like they're so bad at doing factions, but like Cesaro, Nakamura, Sheamus, like like there is a decent like mid card faction there potentially if they had any sort of plans or foresight, but I don't, this, this goes back to a sustaining critique of the product. I don't trust that they have any sort of long-term plans with any of these things. I, I feel like they came up with this Cesaro Seamus thing in the last two weeks. I think for our truth MVP, I think, uh, I think this is going to be another showcase for Brendan Vink somehow coming out and, and helping MVP win this. Uh, it's obvious from Raw, the way that he got that pin. Oh boy, do they the like Brendan Vink? They love them some Brendan Vink, and it's almost oh, like they're, yeah, they're very impressed with Brendan Vink. It's almost like Vince was asleep for two weeks and is now like angry that they had this guy outside waiting to come in for his match and nobody told him. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean he's outside dressing? And that God damn, get that guy back in here, you know, kind of thing. He sounds really smart. That accent's a very smart accent. Look how big he is. I bet he played college football somewhere. Um, he, yeah. he was a sports guy. He was a, he was a young sports guy is my understanding. No, I like Vink, but, like, they seem really impressed with Brendan Vink. And, like, Brendan Vink pinning Ricochet, Prince Puma, a, a brand-carrying level talent. Ugh. 
Yeah, and also getting Shane Thorne the heck out of the way there so he can get that clean pin with nobody else around. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this is a Janetti michael situation. And unfortunately, Shane Thorne's going to be the Janetti. All right, so going to the main card. I will go in order in which, uh, in which Wikipedia has it from bottom to top. Uh, keeping in mind that both the women's and the men's Money in the Bank matches will be happening simultaneously. Oh, look, Wikipedia finally updated and it has now the Hardy and R-Truth matches. It didn't this morning. Um, so I'll do the Money in the Bank ladder matches uh, last. We'll go um, in order. There's a fatal four-way tag match for the WWE SmackDown Tag Championships. New Day, Miz and Morrison, the Forgotten Sons, and Lucha House Party. Chris, do you see a title change? Who are the champions right now? Miz and Morrison? No, the New Day won the belts like two weeks ago on SmackDown in that three-way. In I'm going to say yes, because I feel like they're super uncommitted to the New Day as long-term champions. And so they may just be in a changing titles is an exciting thing to do sort of mode. Yeah, this one feels like they wanted to do it in, in hopes that they were going back to crowds almost immediately because they love... They love the crowd reaction of, oh, insert town here. Um. <laughs> right. No, I, they, man, that's the, that's the other thing. I, I think where they're going to be really in trouble is with, like, the quarter capacity crowds and stuff. I, I, they, there's a lot of faith being placed into the idea that crowds will heal all wounds with this product. But, like, they have put in a very bad television show that people aren't watching right now. So why would you buy tickets to go and see it live? My head says the New Day retain, but my gut says the Forgotten Sons pin the Lucha House Party and win the titles that way. And that way, nobody that they view as important gets... That would be... That's a really... I mean, that's the thing when you do these multi-man matches. It's like they're almost always a vehicle for a heel title change, it seems like. And it's a way of getting the belt onto people you wouldn't necessarily want the belts on and forgotten sons seem it seems like they're about due in the logic of wwe drew mcintyre takes on seth rollins in a singles match for the wwe championship i think it's too early to take the title off of drew but i will admit his him being snarky smart alecky drew mcintyre isn't working for me but it's working for some people but I think Drew retains here. Yeah, I think Drew retains it. I mean, it. I think if for no other reason, they want they want to say that they did something coming out of that WrestleMania, right? Yeah. They they want a WrestleMania moment that's sustained for any length of time, and it seems like the only thing that would be fitting of that mold would be Drew McIntyre winning and having a nice long, at least to SummerSlam title reign. So I, I think they're still committed to the Drew McIntyre project. For the WWE SmackDown Women's Championship, Bailey and her fantastic feud with Michael Cole on commentary takes on Tamina. Uh, Bailey had a hell of a elbow drop in that tag match yesterday. They did uh, they did Sasha and Bailey versus Tamina and Lacey Evans, and uh, from three quarters of the way across the ring, Bailey looked like Macho Man as opposed to say CM Punk. On the, on the elbow drop. It was it was pretty darn good. Uh, how do you see this match going? Is it time for Aunt Pam to go a different direction? Yeah, it probably is. 
um because it's it, it has yet to click i'm gonna say bailey retains though somehow I, I think that maybe the fluky the fluky string of her winning continues here and that they're not ready to abandon ship on bailey yet i think it's interesting because SummerSlam was supposed to be in Boston. It looks like that's off now. And that would have been a perfect place to have Bailey and Sasha have a one-on-one match. But I think they continue this thing where I think Bailey ekes out a win somehow, but I think Sasha almost costs her the title and we continue with that type of thing. But I do think Bailey wins. How do you think about that? Yeah, no, I like that. Maybe in that that kind of services the longer term story of tension between Bailey and Sasha. And Sasha trying to explain to Bailey, hey, I was doing this in the context of a match, but Bailey maybe not letting it go. Braun Strowman takes on Bray Wyatt in a singles match for the Universal Championship. They're really teasing a Papa Shango Ultimate Warrior type thing here between these two with the put on the mask gimmick from last night. I don't think Bray Wyatt wins the title, but I think he might win Braun Strowman. Chris, what do you think? Oh, you think that, like, he gets Braun Strowman back and kind of reunites the Wyatt family angle? Or, like, that's that's what it just I think it just becomes a story of, look, I have the title, but I don't really own the title, and then eventually Braun has to beat Bray to get his freedom, and then they pop or something like that. Maybe. I could see that. I, I definitely think that this story continues after uh, after this. Like, I, I don't think this is the end of the Bray Wyatt, Braun Strowman. I don't think it's a one-off. I'll let you go first on this one. The Women's Money in the Bank ladder match. Climbing that corporate ladder. Uh, Asuka, Shayna Baszler, Nia Jax, Dana Brooke, Lacey Evans, and Carmella. Who is your female Money in the Bank title holder? At the end of the night, Chris. Give me that list of uh, competitors one more time. I will even break it down by brand. From the Raw brand, Asuka, Shayna Baszler, and Nia Jax. From SmackDown, Dana Brooke, Lacey Evans, and Carmella. Okay, so I think it's going to end up being Shayna Baszler after Dana Brooke pushes over whoever's on the mail ladder because I think the way this is going to finish off is the woman and the man are both going to be climbing the ladder at the same time in the ring. There's going to be two briefcases dangling. No, I'm joking a little bit, but I do think that the finish is probably going to involve like two people climbing the ladder at once to have bad optics. Um, I think Shayna Baszler wins. I think that the winner obviously has to come from Raw because, of course, on Raw on Monday, they're plugging they plug that Becky Lynch confronts the women's money in the bank winner. And look, you can have someone from, you can have someone from SmackDown win it and, and guest star on raw. I just don't think it works now. I mean, but you say that, but that's exactly the type of swerve ski that they would get into. Yeah. Um, Shayna Baszler is an easy pick here. And it seems like they need to have some sort of long-term plan for her. And, and with her submission move and her character, she seems the best fit for the Money in the Bank briefcase. Like, but, you know, Dana Brooke, Asuka, why? I, you know, like, like I, I don't – I mean, I love Asuka. The, the reason why is because Asuka's been criminally mistreated in the company. But I'm talking about from the perspective of the company, whereas Shayna Baszler, I can construct a motive. But hear me out. I don't think Shayna needs to win the title – with a briefcase. I think they can build a normal feud and have them win. I think 
I think Shayna's the easy choice here, but I think Nia Jax gets this briefcase, and I'll tell you why. Nia could be the transition between a second Becky and Shayna feud in some ways. They can rebuild the whole you punched me in the face before Survivor Series type thing. And then if, if Nia Jax, I mean, Nia Jax needs to be an opportunist more than a monster heel who beats Becky Lynch like Shayna, like Shayna Baszler would be. So I think you could do more of a straight ahead build for Shayna versus a Nia thing where Nia having the briefcase makes sense that she could take advantage of, say, Shayna Baszler jumping Becky Lynch, turn in the briefcase, and then just easily beat Becky Lynch for the pin. I think that's the direction they go. So I'm going to say Nia Jax, but I think you're probably correct. Yeah, I get the case for Nia Jax. I get it. I, I just They generally like the, the opportunist angle, and Nia Jax seems like less of an opportunist type of character. Oh, Less, less than Shayna? No, I think Shayna seems more of an opportunist. Do you? Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm the I'm the opposite direction. I think I think Shayna has more badass credentials she can rely on if they decide to go that way. Yeah. No. I mean, well, yes. Uh, I, I think they if, have a lot more. Yeah. There's a, a big if. Yeah. It was Shayna. Sure. Yeah. Here, here's Jeff going. If they book this correctly, oh, thanks, Jeff. Moron. No. I mean, <laughs> that is the problem, though. It's like with so much of what we do speculatively or like you know, kind of long-term critiquing. It's hard when this is a company that over the last five to seven years has a history of changing finishes to pay-per-views on the fly seemingly just to make things interesting for themselves daniel bryan ray mysterio alistair black king corbin otis and aj styles who won his way in on monday night raw in a gauntlet match where of course they announce a gauntlet match and then they say on camera these competitors don't know how many people are in the gauntlet match it's, that they have. That was face. so strange. Are you was, effing kidding me? And, and people, okay, sure, I'll sign up for that. <laughs> I, I, like, there's that, and then even as the, the audience, it's like, okay, so like, what am I supposed to be investing in, right? Like, I can't, I don't know what's going to happen next. I can't wait. You're investing in the moron who decides he wants a promotion, so he agrees to do whatever the boss tells him to do. Hey, you want to fight through 30 men for a chance for, okay, sure. I, I could not believe they put that on the air. It'd be uh, hard if you were really, like, if you were going to quote unquote screw over a baby face, it'd be hard to even really sell it as a full screw where it's like, well, there's one more competitor and it turned out to be, you know, Andre the Giant 2. Uh, he, yeah, he's massive, you know, and he's going to obliterate you now. Well, the funny part in this before we pick our winner is, is look who got most of the stroke and the rub from this match. It was Umberto Carrillo, who once again loses to AJ Styles. And it's like, this, mid, this baby face mid-card, what, what are you doing? Because nobody ever gets the big win. It's always, just, you know, Ricochet. Nobody's even on an interesting Umberto Carrillo. All of them are on this trajectory of suck. And you're just like, okay, I don't I, want to I watch calling that. it a trajectory is generous because trajectory implies forward motion. Yeah. And all of these guys have been basically treading water. Okay, I am going to give my pick first, and I will see what you think of this logic. Tucker has been off the shelf or on the shelf for a few weeks now, ever since WrestleMania. King Corbin ended SmackDown Friday night by the ceremonial holding the briefcase thing. And I think they're going to 
give the briefcase to a SmackDown person because usually they want one on each show. So that that brings it down to either Otis or Daniel Bryan. I think they're all in on this Otis character. I think they're waiting for a crowd to get that big pop when Otis cashes in. I think Otis wins this. I think Mandy comes out for a kiss after being screwed out of her opportunity. And I think he holds on to it for the better part of a year until we have audiences at arenas again, and then cashes it in probably at the first show that SmackDown has with an audience and wins the title. I think that that would be a really exciting way of presenting Otis. Um, I, I could also just as easily see AJ Styles winning this. Um, I'd like that. That's kind of where my gut says is it's going to be Styles who wins. Um, he's just a safe, steady guy to put the briefcase on. Um, I like the idea of presenting Otis like this. Um, I, I like, you know, kind of building him up, building up the relationship with him and Mandy. I mean, if you're going to do that, I would have him like wait to cash in the briefcase like closer to the end of the year. I'd really get us committed to the idea of like getting behind Otis as this baby face. And, and, you know, like to that point, maybe that's where, you know, getting your Cesaro's and Sheamus's and these big heavies and stuff to beat up on Otis um, and give people for Otis to like have to scrap and, you know, you know, claw through to get to his title shot. It makes some sense. It makes some sense to unite a heel faction to have Otis bulldoze through. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you, you're selling me a little bit on the Otis thing, uh, but then we go back to the classic gif of if there's good writing. So I'm going to go with AJ Styles. That's, that's a perfectly fine choice, I think. I think Daniel Bryan, there's a choice to be made for him too, or a case to be made. Um, it doesn't seem like – Otis is interesting though because Otis would be the one where you have actual emotional plot investment way, in it, whereas AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan are just going back to safe choices. It, but in order to do that, what you really have to do is make us forget that Otis has the case too. You really have to say – you can say it for like one day, like that Friday after, hey, Otis has the case, and then we forget about it. And then Otis gets beat down by a Cesaro and a Sheamus, and he comes back and he starts winning that and winning that. And then one day there's just an opportunity when the champ is down and he's, and he's just gotten beat up. And then all of a sudden you hear, you know, the heavy machinery music and you go, Oh yeah, Otis has the case, you know, kind of thing. To me, it has to be more. Him coming screaming, Oh yes. Yeah. Get ready to cash. It would be great. Well played. I thought of that as soon as I said it. And then, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think if done well, Otis with the case would be great. I'm, I'm starting to talk myself out of it, though. <laughs> it's one of those things where I go, no, he's a tag team wrestler. They'd have to do the whole breakup story and stuff like that. I don't first. know. I think you. I think this is where it gets fun. You can have Tucker as a supportive friend. You can have Mandy Rose as – fun the, for us, but it's not fun for Vince. That's the thing. No, I, I know. He hates that. He hates, like, fun – he hates the idea of, like, <laughs> three people who are all friends um, versus the adversity of – Working in a competitive wrestling league. Novembrino, um, get in here. Why do you have these people have friends when people are just friends are just there to be used to climb the corporate ladder? What do you mean, Chucker and Mandy are actually just friends and they just care about Otis? This is stupid, right? This is stupid. This isn't real life. Real men don't have friends. <laughs> if she's just using him, women don't really love that. Yeah. Um Okay, so that's Money in the Bank now to Wednesday nights. Uh, let's hit AEW real quick. Um, 
look, I loved – well, hold on. Let's go to what I hated. Jake Roberts, if he doesn't get fired, I'd be very surprised. I would. I'm sorry. That was just too creepy by half and too – too me too to, to – uh, yeah, I, boy, I mean, especially after the Brandy promo. I See, here's the thing. I think that that was – is there scuttlebutt that that was not worked in? Because it felt like that was kind of the obvious punchline to what Brandy Rhodes was saying in that promo. But, but even then, seeing it on my TV, I was like, oh, man, Jake is really doing that with the snake, and the snake's really there. Oh, I- my. I couldn't believe he did the push-up. I just yeah, uh, no, I, I know. I, I think I think I mean I bet you too when they were planning it out it was going one way and then Jake was just quote unquote feeling it. Um yeah, yeah but that, uh, that, that yeah. felt improvised. That felt very improvised. And if there were a crowd there, they would have booed him out of the building and it would have been we'd be talking, Well, is that good heat or bad heat? <laughs> I, I like and again, I mean it, it, it really – it's super dependent on Brandy, Cody, Jake's relationship, and I don't know anywhere near enough of that to be yeah. able to speculate on that. Um, we don't I mean, know if she gave approval of that either. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I could totally see Brandy – I mean, I could totally see Brandy being absolutely mortified after that and having words with Jake. I could also see Brandy being a gamer and saying, hey, I'm going to do this promo that's like, don't even look at me, and then I want you to completely recross the line, and that will give Cody carte blanche to come in and get comeuppance on you and Lance and blah, blah, blah. I mean, a lot of this is going to be in the follow-up too. Does Brandy come out and slap the shit out of Jake Roberts? I think that that's definitely called for, maybe even necessary at this point. Maybe she kicks him in the balls. Um, So, like – I don't know. Um, and I, I'm TBD on this, and I need more information before I can really kind of come up with a judgment on that. But it did, like, look, it's – I just would never have a beat like that on television in 2020. I, I get what was going on, and I, I, I can get a defense of it, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't. Chris, you and I, both proponents of knee pads over jeans when it's time to get down to business in a street fight. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Loved that on Guevara and Jericho. Popped like mad when I saw it. Had people tweeting at me going, Hawkins, you watching this? This is right down your alley. I'm like, yes. And then half, I loved the first half of this match. And I'm going to be in the minority. I hated the second part because then it got into, and I have to quantify this. I, Look, when I want to see a street fight, I want to see this kind of brawl. I want to see, quote, unquote, blood and guts. I'm, I don't want to see DDT style with, like, uh, with um, uh, Kota Ibushi riding a miniature train down a track and then jumping on a guy. And that's what this became. This became cutesy Damascus appearing out of the ice machine, you know, trying to drive a golf cart when you – really didn't know how and trying to set up those spots and those cute things when I just really just kind of wanted to fight for my for my main event heels and my main event baby faces and I just view them as it it was a little bit too self-aware for my taste you probably liked it more than I did I felt like it went a little wacky zany for a little too long. Yeah. And I would have had no problem with a big wacky zany finish, especially for Omega and Matt Hardy. If you're going to have them win a match, uh, especially a match like this, it makes perfect narrative sense to have a big wacky zany moment 
with Kenny Omega and Matt Hardy. Um, I, but like the problem is when you get Omega, Jericho, Hardy, it, even to a lesser extent, Guevara, all of them are hams. And the, the impulse to ham is just too heavy between those four guys. Uh, and so, yeah, I liked it when it, they were having kind of more of a straight match. And then once we moved into Wacky Zany, I knew that we were going to be there too long. And so I, I had the same sort of like, okay, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, we've seen I, the golf cart. We've seen the ice machine. We've seen I, the traffic cone. We've seen the scissor lift. We, you know, it was one of those things. Funnier as a finish, or funnier as a final two minutes than it is. Like the more time you give it, it's a diminishing return. Yeah. you get the same amount of returns. You're just stretching out those returns over a longer length of time, so it's less. Ha ha ha! That was great. Whereas, like, I always go back to you. Remember halftime heat? I, I back in like 1998, McFoley and uh, The Rock. The, the pin with the forklift is memorable, right? Um, you know, it's goofy or whatever. But, like, that to me is the, is the right type of wacky zany finish. You, you do one or two of those little moments, and that's how you get out. Well, yeah, even, like, the WrestleMania 17 three-way between Kane, Big Show, and Raven, where one guy takes off in a golf cart, and all of a sudden everybody else is taking off in golf carts. As, a, as one singular spot, that's cool. If they did that four times, it would just be like, ah, oh, okay, stop it. We, we saw this joke already. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little more down on it than most. I understand why people like it, though. I'm, I'm not against that. I just think, for me, the inner circle is becoming too much. And, and I use this as a comparison more than as how they are pushed. But the NWO never wanted to be heels. They wanted to be the cool heels that were kind of cheered by a certain amount of people and then played into it as opposed to like, like the horsemen were cheered back in the day, but they weren't, they, they never played into it. They always said, Hey, we wear black hats. We're bad guys. Don't cheer us. And they couldn't just because they were so awesome. They eventually got cheers. Whereas the NWO really were like, look how cool we are. Ha 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 type of thing. I think, I think the inner circle is getting very, very close to that. If not, the horsemen were good about having quote unquote horseman country. And I thought that that was a really great way of kind of encapsulating that like baby face pop for just these really good working heels. Um, But yeah, to your point, um, I I just think Jericho and the inner circle stuff, it, it does trend to that cool heel thing. And Jericho continues to play that like cool hair heel character on air. Um, I also think, I, I got to be honest, um, I, I thought that the chemistry between Shivani and Jericho is is a more enjoyable listen than Ross and, yeah, Excalibur and Shivani. I was uh, kind of disappointed when they came back. No knock on Excalibur. I like Excalibur. I just, I mean, if we're but talking... A, but a knock on JR, is that what you're going with? Yeah, you know, for sure. Okay. For sure. Because I know, I, I think that, like, JR and Shivani are crowding each other's lane. And, like, you don't need both of them at this point. And I don't think that they have a really good differing vision of the company and diff- like it would be one thing if those two guys were butting heads a little bit more on air and had a little bit more of a kind of design purposeful butting heads gimmick like they're both trying to tell the story straight in the way that they see it so they're not doing the heel thing where they're just cheering for all the heels but like shivani is more the pure optimist and ross is more the pure cynic and like i don't know just something you would need a dynamic between them that is lacking and not there for, in order for me to find them particularly compelling. Whereas I thought, you know, Shivani and Jericho, 
yes, Jericho has his issues. He was, he was hamming it up too much or whatever. But, like, it was a really natural chemistry that, like, you understood the dynamic there. It was an enjoyable dynamic. And, like, both those guys made it work. I'll tell you, it goes back to a prior criticism that I've had of the announcing team. I think Excalibur, Tony, and Jericho are all in on the show and all in on the moment. I think JR does commentary as if he's needs to do a podcast about it later that week. I mean, here's the other thing too. <laughs> I think if you want to talk about like a, a style of the booth, it would be much more funny if you had Shivani. And then you had the baby face X wrestler, Excalibur, and the heel X wrestler, Jericho. And they, they're, they're both like the commentary guys. So it's kind of like crossfire with, with like a moderator. Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? And like you have like the heel trying to explain what they need to be doing. And occasionally they can agree on stuff like, oh, you know, you'll have Jericho and Excalibur agreeing. Oh, that's a really great execution of the Boston crap. Oh, like, oh man, like that, that's really hard. And you can have them. They don't always have to be working like politics TV or whatever, where they have to butt heads every single time. But like most of the time they'll butt heads. Um, I, I, and then you have Shivani kind of like weaving through it. And yeah, I, I think that that's a, if you're going to do a three man booth, that to me is a much more exciting format than like what we've been seeing on WWE where you have like the non wrestler commentator guys, because those guys, they, because when you're a non wrestler commentator, you're, you have so much less that you're allowed to say. And you have to just say, well, I kind of like that. You know, Byron, Byron sort of built his whole straight man character around the, the, the rib of you give us nothing to work with. So all I, ha- all I can do is smile like an idiot. Um, anything else on AEW? I liked the promos by MJF and, and, Sh- and Sean Spears. I thought those were really good. Uh, I thought the Britt Baker, the way they got Brandy into the ring, I thought that was creative. Um, I, overall- yeah, yeah, no, I liked, I liked the Britt Baker, Brandy Rhodes interaction. I thought that that was a really clever way of like yeah. making all that stuff work. Um, I like Brody Lee. I, I think that that, that buildup is good. Um, too, oh, too, too quick for a title match, though. For too him. quick for a title match, for sure. Um, Kazarian and Moxley, that I thought had a fun. that was a good match, yes. right? Like, like, yes, no, that crossed my threshold of like, I have no expectations for this. To oh, okay, Frankie's got his working boots on today, and like they had really good chemistry, and like, yeah, no, that was just a good match, man. Um, like you, you know what's gonna happen, you know the Moxley's gonna win. Um, but they, they had a very, very entertaining, very, very watchable match. There. It did not feel like a title match to me in terms of the importance or anything like that, but it felt no. like, it felt like, like if I was going to take something from my fandom, it felt like when you're watching, like if you watched Manny Fernandez versus Wahoo McDaniel, it just felt like two veterans in there just having a good match. And it didn't matter what if the title was on the line or if it wasn't. You're just watching this match and going, man, these guys are really bringing it to each other. And, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not the biggest Kazarian fan in the world, uh, but I thought he was great in this match. Yeah, no, I, I, I really liked this match. Uh, I, I, say, I, hold on, hold on. I need, to, I need to quantify that because I can hear people going, you don't think Kazarian's good? I go, I think Kazarian's very good. I, I'm just not his biggest fan. There's a difference there. <laughs> What I will say is I, I kind of agree with you. I think the more interesting way of presenting a match like this that is um, not up to snuff of uh, a title match where you actually bite on the idea that Kazarian can win, it's much more interesting to put Kazarian in a scenario where if he wins this match against Moxley, he gets a future title shot. Yeah. Um, because I think that that is a much more plausible thing to get an audience to bite on 
maybe Kazarian could get himself a title shot down the line by sneaking one out against Moxley. And by sneaking one out, that could be interference or something. You know, like, so you as the viewer are watching this with a little bit more open-mindedness about the outcome of this match. Um, and then you could still, of course, have, you know, Moxley prevail over Kazarian. Like, but, but setting it up with slightly lower stakes actually does something to get the audience to bite on the idea that there might be a different outcome. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I went through the, uh, you know, when they did the Apple Teeny gimmick in TNA, I really liked it. Oh, yeah, that was great. Well, also, uh, Bad Influence had a fantastic theme song. Oh, it was phenomenal, and I really loved them then. I just thought when, during the SCU thing, I think they become a little bit too New Age Outlaws-y in terms of, you know, it's mostly catchphrase. The theme song is goofy, right? Hmm? Their theme song is goofy. Yes, but like the vocal track out of SCU, like it is a very West SCU. Yeah, no, like the the delivery on the vocals and also the lyrics too. But like the actual delivery is like almost like a South Park style, like hern hern gonna reckoning out. Like like it's almost to that level. Yeah, and I just I just I it's not that I think Kazarian's become lazy or anything. I think it's just this is. There, there had been since AEW a style of SCU match, and I, I, I like the Kazarian, um, uh, 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 third member of the team that I'm blanking on right now, Scorpio Sky. Oh, Scorpio Sky, yeah, yeah, no, I, no, love, I, love, I love that I like section between the Dark Order and SCU. Yeah, and that, that's yeah, what that's it was cool. too. That I think that soured me a bit. Um, but yeah, speaking of commentary, uh, Morrow and Tom Phillips. And especially, I think Morrow and Tom, if they were together, I think I could see them being a really good team. That's really interesting. I, I am actually, I was about to make the point that I... felt I, like uh, they weren't working well together on this show. This, this, no, this, this, I, I thought they had a very similar chemistry issue to JR and Tony Schiavone, yeah. where they're kind of jamming each other's legs. Um, yeah, yeah no, I, think, I, I like Moro. I like Tom. I don't know that I love those two guys together. And when I was listening to Moro and Tom together, I was wondering... I wonder if maybe Morrow's on the way of getting cut here. Well, he, here's here's why I think there were issues. Number one, Beth had to usually get in there between the two of them, which I'm not Beth Phoenix's biggest fan on commentary. I, I'm really not. I don't. She hasn't really added a whole lot. To this me. is a very exciting time tonight, Jeff. <laughs> I got to recover from that. Um. Yeah, and I'll tell you what it was. It was that Morrow kept throwing to Tom, and I don't think Tom was expecting it. It's like, Tom, what do you think about this? And he's like, well, why are you throwing me about this insignificant point right now kind of thing? Um, yeah, I thought it was a little rough on commentary um, Wednesday night. I think we got to talk about the elephant in the room, Chris. The Carrion Cross debut. Oh my! Yeah, you, I, you, team, funny, I managed you, to black that out. Hold on, are you team liked it or are you team nah? Didn't do it for me because Lanza had a rant about it on the flagship. A lot of people on my Twitter really loved it. Where do you stand? Um, it was awful. Like it was really, really bad. He's a very, very boring character. I'm always dubious about naming somebody with like multiple K's in their name. I think that that's a bad call. Um, I, I 
I get that there's an era where that was cool. Not a great call. Not a great call. I think Scarlett uh, Boudreaux or Bordeaux or whatever um, coming out and singing the song and lip syncing the song. It's like goofy. Um, it's like the original presentation of Evanescence that apparently uh, Amy, what's her name, hated um, with the rap rock stuff like that. There's a uh, this is goofy, man. Um, the cross jacket was goofy. I, I thought that the style doesn't match the character. It was just like they took all of the templates of standard WWE badass characters, put them into a grab bag, shook them up, and came up with a combination that was even lamer than Damian Priest in the Archer of Infamy gimmick. I'm not going to say whether I liked it or hated it. because I No, I you don't do that. No, no, no. I, you can't. No, no. You, did you like it or did you hate it? I, I'm perfectly neutral to it. Because no, I'm, come on. No, you, you, it evokes no emotion to you. They were bombarding you with shit. And yeah, that I know, nothing. I know, I know, but let me explain because I, I was, because it goes into my follow up question. When crowds come back, and if you put this on the main roster, and if you continue to present him like this, does he get over? And I think he does. I think this is a I don't w- think he does. I don't I, think he does. I think this is a WWE entrance turned up to 11 i think people are gonna i think casual wwe type fans are gonna go ape for this type of thing they're gonna go ape for scarlet i i don't know if cross is the type of guy who's gonna get over with his wrestling after if he's just gonna be all entrance but i think this appeals to the sports entertainment fan and i think it might work i really do i'm, I'm not it's not my thing Okay, I, I, I think we have, enough, we have enough goth acts in this company where we don't need another goth act like this. But the presentation of it and the effort they put into it says to me they're going to go with this for a while. going to be at a tag team with Damian Priest by the end of the year. Okay, so they're gonna get so that so this entrance is gonna be gone by the end of the year then. Yeah, no, or they're gonna be doing it together. I, I, I just. I don't think that this is going to take off like friggin' wildfire. I, I didn't see anything in the ring here. I, yeah, he hit some impressive-looking Saito suplexes. And by impressive, I mean competently executed. Like, they, they were fine. Um, but I, I didn't see anything here that made me go, oh, wow, I can't wait to see this act. Uh, this, this captivates the imagination. And, yeah, like, no, it's, it's a nice badass entrance, but – does the crowd go wild for Gangrel? Oh, it's not Gangrel. People love Gangrel. Does the crowd go wild for Damian Priest? No, but they used it for Aleister Black. Yeah, yeah, um, but Aleister Black is the much better wrestler. I agree. Than Karrion Cross, and so if if Aleister Black got to level whatever you want to put the Aleister Black level, and we know where the Aleister Black level isn't, right? Um, if he got to that level, um, he would still be a mid Carter. Lanza had a very good point on the flagship, and it was one I had in my head as well. Um, unfortunately, they did their show first. Uh, you can tell when they've given up on this angle when he no longer gets this entrance. And I think, you know, you'll be able to, the first time they don't do this entrance is the first time you know that this, this act is just done. And they're, they're going to find, find a way to do something. On the lip syncing. I'm telling you, yeah. I, I don't think that they have the confidence to force 
the lip syncing for that long. The second they start feeling like this is dudding, they're going to drop that part of it. And then at that point, this whole thing is going to fall apart like a Jenga tower. And they'll, and they'll keep Scarlet and dump cross. <laughs> right, right. They'll move her on or they'll make, yeah, right. No, I think what they're ultimately going to decide, Jeff, is that Scarlet is the more intriguing part of this than cross is. Mm-hmm. So into the show itself, Johnny Gargano versus Dominic Dijakovic. Uh, I'm I'm tired of cutting promos to performers during the during the match, and I just thought the whole thing with uh with Candice wasn't very good. Uh, the match itself was okay. Any thoughts? Yeah, match is okay. I'm less down on the idea of like trying to tell a story in the match with them talking and doing stuff, but like they're not doing it well. It's an execution thing, not a concept thing. Well, Dijakovic, stupid babyface syndrome, talking to the person outside the ring instead of focusing what's on the match. I mean, it just. It Wait, just... Which is weird and not characteristic of Dijakovic, yeah. who's always been like super focused and super disciplined and stuff. Yeah, no, I. I I have problems with that. I think there's a way to get Johnny the win, but I think if you're going to do that, it's got to be more like Candace helps screw with Dij- like actually like hurts Dijakovic and, and like really give Johnny those moments. Um, and I, I felt like this was a little too clean for a victory that Johnny really does need to be cheating to win. Kira Tozawa is now 2-0 and in his division, defeating Jack Gallagher in the Cruiserweight title tournament match. Still don't understand why they're using him as, as a geek on Raw. I really don't. <laughs> he's gonna he's probably gonna come out of this out of this out of this foursome with a three and zero record, I think, unless they decide to do a two and one and have a tiebreaker between two people in there. I just you know, he he got thrown away in the gauntlet match too. It it was just so weird. I mean, this this is a long term issue with our booking. It's you don't know what matters because uh, things that you would think would matter don't. I, I mean, he's got two victories here. At the same time, it's like, who did he beat? He beat Jake Atlas and he beat uh, – no, did, he didn't beat Jake Atlas. He beat Jack Gallagher. Who did he beat the last time, though? Was it Spud? Um, it was um, – no, it because he's not in the division. I think it's uh, El Hijo del Fantasma, isn't it? Or is no. that in the other one? Oh, it's uh, – Oh crap! Now I gotta look up these. Right but like they're, they're kind of guys who, they're kind of guys who you could see him getting inconsequential wins over, right? Like I, I mean, and also at the same time, it's like how much is quote unquote the interim cruiserweight championship really mean when this company wants to rush back Devlin and all talent and return oh, to normalcy as it, quick as possible? Swerve Scott. Swerve Scott. So you know, I mean. Yeah, he beat Gallagher and Swerve Scott. And, and, and they could have just as easily went the other way. Yeah. But Tozawa of those three is the only one who's ever been a champion. So you could also say they are scheduled Ws. Okay, back to NXT. Chelsea Green defeated Zaya Lee with a little bit of help from Aaliyah. It looks like Aaliyah will be taking the Deanna Perrazzo spot in uh, the Robert Stone brand. I think she fits a little bit better in the Robert Stone brand, to be honest with you. I just yeah, don't I think, think she's so as good too. of a wrestler. She's not as no, good as a wrestler, of course. No, and I'd almost kind of like her as an outside character rather than a wrestler. Like, like her, yeah. it, it, it should be Aaliyah and Stone kind of like as the management team. And then you have Green and get some other people around Green. But, but I like Aaliyah a little bit more as the NPC. Or the person the woman who occasionally takes the bump. So like when you have, I don't know, like Chelsea green going up against some baby face champion, 
Green can go in powder and Aaliyah gets left in the ring and she's the one who gets obliterated. And you also feel like this might be a bit of a might be the beginning of the end for Vanessa Bourne who decided to quarantine in Scottsdale, Arizona and not fly back during this whole thing. So that would be a shame, but, uh, uh well, they're not punishing people though. I hear. So it's uh, fine. Yeah. I hear that. Uh, interested in your opinion on this one. Io Shirai beat Charlotte Flair by disqualification. Rhea Ripley coming back out post-match. I loved this match and I'm probably one of the only people okay with the end. I understand it's a cheap end. But, but you were talking last week that this is how they were most likely going to get out of this. So, yes. like, I, I not was not surprised at all by this finish, and I was more surprised that people were surprised by this because I'm like, this is standard wrestling 101. You're not yes. looking to beat EO this week. There's no wisdom to beating EO this week. And if they had done it, people more than likely on Twitter and in the discourse would be complaining about that because it was nonsensical. So this yeah. was – the right way out of this, it gives EO and Charlotte a return at a later point down the line, maybe sets the table for a three-way match. It gets more characters introduced into the storyline. This is a good thing. The world title generally does not change hands on week-to-week television. It changes hands on... Nor should it. Yeah. Nor should it. I just, so I just, either, she was either going... EO was either going to lose... Or she was going to win in the least consequential way possible, and it wasn't going to set her up well for a good long title run, which is what just, people who want to see EO win want. I was just shocked. And, and of course, they're not going to beat Charlotte clean, I don't think, either. That's why they're going to have the three-way. I, I, I don't think Charlotte gets involved in the ending of, of the match once the title changes hands. No, I think, I think EO Shirai ends up winning the title by pinning Rhea Ripley, yeah. and that sets up the feud between EO and Rhea. And then and then they put and then they go well we did our best with Charlotte on NXT but she's not moving ratings we'll put her back on Raw where she's a star, but you know I heard a lot of people going man I hated that ending because the kendo stick blah 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 I go man that's that's world championship title matches on week to week television throughout the eighties. You know, Dude, that is like every WCCW yeah, and like NWA finish on like a 605 with, with, Saturday with a, show. Yeah. With a heel champ because it's obvious now there's been a double turn. It, it's like it's one of those things where, yes, the person you're rooting for gets very, very close. You think they're going to win, and then, the, and then the champ cheats to get out of it because he's a coward. Yeah. And that's, that's the other important thing that was being done here in this match. That I think, you know, for, not for anything, the, the obsession with the finish sort of misses what the finish was really about, right? Like, this whole match was about fully moving EO from chaotic heel who we're kind of rooting for to the sympathetic figure in the storyline, who you want to see get comeuppance. And Rhea got reintroduced into the storyline, sure. And she's the former champion, and she's still a face, sure. But the narrative is all through EO Shirai getting screwed out of this title shot, because Charlotte was scared, and then Charlotte injuring EO. So we are rooting for EO now. They turned EO. That was the whole point of this match. Cameron Grimes defeated Denzel Desjarnet. I hate it. Denzel Desjarnet. Uh, and Leon Ruff, for that matter. I mean, they're just, they're just you know, red shirts of the week. Yeah, absolutely. No, but like Denzel Dijonet, I thought the whole him firing up only to get obliterated seconds later was the ultimate goobering. Even yeah, worse yeah. than Leon Ruff getting booked into a match against Karrion Cross, which like any match booker would know, this guy has no chance against Karrion Cross. Like you, you can, 
<laughs> Leon Ruff, you can argue, it was irresponsible booking by the fight promoter. Um, with Denzel Dijonet, it wasn't irresponsible booking. This is a guy who probably has a size advantage on Grimes and then just like completely gets obliterated by Grimes. Um, you know, I, I did not enjoy this segment, um, the match, nor the post-match promo stuff with Balor and Grimes. I didn't enjoy the Balor promos at all. I just thought they're too insidery. I, I just think they stunk. And I enjoyed the Grimes promo up until the point he, he bailed. I, I just hated that. I was like, no, he should have went for the slap. Like, go for like, the slap. Exactly. Yes. Like, oh, man, Absolutely. sorry about that. No, go for the slap like you're a cocky jerk and just have uh, Finn beat the crap out of him. Especially hot on your own shit after another win. Yes. Like, like, no, he should have been really feeling himself at that point. have been like, yeah, I'm hot money. I'm going to slap the tennis right now. Finn Balor's about. He's here. And he sees him. And, like, the confidence should not have wiped off of his face until after he, like, waylaid Finn Balor with the slap. And Finn Balor's just standing there after. Completely unflinched. And Balor has to no-sell that. And then Grimes goes... Oh, oh, and then powders. Yeah, or or he takes that moment when he first sees Finn, and goes, "Oh, you're here," and then he and just kind of have that reconciliation, like, "Look, you said this, you got to do it." Okay, fine, I'm gonna smack him, and then gets beat down or something. But yeah, just uh oh, that was oh man, I'm just kind of yeah, I'm tired because I took this because I had this match. I really don't want to do this. No, I want to see the cocky heel be cocky. I don't want to see this. Oh, I mean, it just or just run away, just run away. Right? Yeah, or you just run. Yeah, the second like you can do the Looney Tunes style thing where you know, he taps him on the shoulder, Grimes sees Finn Balor and like runs out of the ring like comically, like jumps yes. off of the top turnbuckle to the outside, like into the stands. Yeah, just runs, through, runs throughout the entire building to get the hell away from him. Just yeah, yeah, you know, no, and, and actually, the gimmick, yeah, the gimmick is that you keep following him, and he's still running like five minutes later. Yeah, and then he ends up somewhere, and that's where 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 Finn Balor is. He just gets like right and then and Balor is there and hits him again. Yes, exactly. I, you know, I'll take that. I'll take that. Kind uh, of no, I, I'll go especially with with Grimes because it's like he is kind of a combination of like there's a goofiness to him and also a formidableness to him because he's able to get these like snap victories. Like I, because you have that snap victory component to his character, you can have him showing more ass. And I actually think it helps if he's going to be a mid card heel to have him showing some ass. It's his arrogance and his ego that gets in his way of him winning matches, not his actual prowess. Yoshida beat Jack, Jake Atlas. I Jake Atlas <laughs> again, they dance around the gay thing. They, they really don't want to go into it because they're afraid they're going to turn people off. They're not really doing a lot of character development with Jake Atlas. I mean, he had a, he had, he had a pretty good match with Drake and show himself off, and then he just, he just kind of is there to take the loss from Kushida here. I, just, I don't understand this. Yeah, your guess is as good as mine with Jake Atlas. I, I don't get signing him if you're not going to go with what he brings to the table. It's just screaming. We signed him so that because AEW was ready to push him to the moon. And yeah, no, it really, it, I mean, and I think, you know, if you're Jake Atlas, you're probably going, oh, what have I done with myself here? Pretty much. But if your dream is to go to WWE, <sighs> <Dream>. <laughs> mine never was. 
Dreams occur. <laughs> they don't necessarily come true. Speaking of dreams, the Velveteen Dream lost his title match to Adam Cole. Dexter Loomis uh, coming out as the Guardian from out under the ring. I howled at that. Like, all of this was bizarre. dumb, but... I, yeah, I, like, I, all, I, all of this was really... It was just... just it's like... I, this is a very kind of WWE style finish, but mm-hmm. it was like it's weird to have Loomis and Dream and like Loomis. I guess the angle here is going to be Loomis cost Dream the match, and uh, you know we're going to build to a Loomis Dream match that I uh, will be bad. <laughs> I'm not. Loomis is just weird enough where I'm starting to like him. I'm kind of liking it, but like I'm almost more interested in him stalking the undisputed era and making their lives hell for four yeah. weeks. I have been him having a match with Velveteen Dream. He's like he has this perverted sense of justice, and he's going after the undisputed era, and he'll just be wherever they are. I, yeah, I no, like, yeah, you have like a mid of the show or like pre-main event match every week where it's like Loomis versus Bobby Fish, Loomis versus Kyle O'Reilly, Loomis versus Roddy Strong. Um, I actually think that that's an interesting way to get through several weeks of television. Then you can build up to him having a match against Adam Cole, and they all like dog pile on Loomis or whatever. Or maybe Velveteen Dream comes out. And then that's what causes Dream and Loomis to butt heads. Like if O'Reilly, um, O'Reilly's going to be out for a number of weeks because of, of the quarantine. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Loomis put him out and, and do it that way. And I think that would be, make this story far more intriguing that Loomis has these weird obsessions where he'll, he'll fly up to Canada to take out Kyle O'Reilly. It's like, okay, cool, I'll take that. As you know what actually would be a fun way of writing off O'Reilly, too? is you can have O'Reilly at his house due to stay at home and you can have like Loomis do something like to like cut the power off at his house or something like yeah, basically yeah. force O'Reilly to like be lost in the wilderness for several weeks. Or send him a couple of gloves and like the lights go out, O'Reilly leaves and you see the gloves there when the lights come back on. It, you know, anything you want to do here, you have poetic license. Who does not have poetic license is Velveteen Dream. I... This match wasn't good. He is he is good. No. At, he is good at five minute sprints. No, but he. I mean, I, what I thought this was a real kick of the tires on a fail of that test was Velveteen Dream as a champion. I, yeah. I have none interest in him as the champion. You can't you can't get a year of a title reign out of this guy and have good matches. Those takeovers will be. Every single takeover that year with Velveteen Dream as the champion will be good, but the Velveteen Dream match. That will be the review from like Meltzer, from us, from Lanza. Like, like that, that will be the sustaining review because he does not work on that level. And I know that there are going to be Velveteen Dream fans who are mad at me. It's a great character. He's got a charisma, but the actual in the ropes stuff it lacks man his high flying moves are not crisp it hasn't his evolved it hasn't evolved and that's the problem that's that's where it's going the suplex stylings eh, right um the punches awful um so like uh, you you go like with with the great wrestlers they have high flying moves that are unbelievable right you know rob van dam right the kicks and the high flying moves look fantastic yeah he lacks on submissions yeah he lacks on suplexes there are lots of places where van dam lacks but he had certain things that van dam at his peak was just absolutely unbelievable and eye captivating on super crisp stuff um that's not velveteen dream in anything from submissions to suplexes to high flying moves the thing that has been getting him by is this character and the promos and he's got a Fantastic theme song. And the 80s cosplay. Correct? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the character that has been getting him by. Um, it, it's not anything in between the ropes, and this match really exposed that because Cole um, is kind of the opposite of this. The character is pretty generic heel stuff. It's it's, it's like a dialed down Bobby Roode when Bobby Roode was champion. Um, you know, like, like he's not wearing the glorious ropes, but he's, it's the same kind of like generic WWE heel thing. But the thing with Cole is that. He has a great in-ring match style that has dimensions, and he can do lots of different things. Um, and, like, his offenses and his kicks and stuff look great. Like, he actually has offensive in-the-ring maneuvers that are at that level. Um, it's a totally serviceable heel champion, albeit a little bit generic, but the in-the-ring stuff is good. Dream is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, we the don't mean fun, But the ring stuff, it will never make world champion muster. Yeah, we no longer get the – you know, you can no longer have the lowered expectations and, oh, Gargano and him had pretty good chemistry. And, oh, Ciampa and him had very good chemistry. Once you are, once you are the world title holder in that company, you have You're to the be one the doing guy. the carrying. Yes. You're the one doing the carrying. You can't be, I mean, because, yeah, he had a good match with Johnny Gargano and he had a good match with Tommaso Ciampa. I feel like those guys could probably carry Jeff and I to something watchable. They're good wrestlers. I got um, you know, great, yo. Don't, don't, don't diss me, man. I'm, uh, Hey, I'm a cardio monster. Everyone, everyone's saying that about me. I, I'm, I'm known for that. But, uh, yeah, I could probably carry them to a good match is what I'm saying. Um, no, but, like, I, I think that when you are the world champion, you are the one who has to do the carrying. And the question you have to ask yourself is, could Velveteen Dream carry Brendan Vink to something watchable? I think Brendan Vink's pretty good, but uh, yeah, I know. I, I like no, no. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I, I know exactly. I, I, know. I like Vink. I like Vink. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm if, not if, if, if if NXT were to bring in someone new from their performance center, Karrion Cross could Velveteen Dream as the yes. world champion carry Karrion Cross as the heel challenger to a 25 minute NXT takeover level match? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, so we'll see what happens with Dream and if any of these uh, issues he's having will keep him off television for a while. In the meantime, he should. This felt like a bit of a hedge play, too. This, the, they, yeah. they wanted to downcycle him, and they definitely aggressively downcycled him with the finish of this match. Someone call Shibata and say, we're going to send Dream to you for a year and then send him back, and then we'll see what happens. But, of course, we can't do that because our training center is the best. You just want to see Shibata concuss Velveteen Dream. No, I want, to, I want to see Velveteen Dream with his size and his build look like an ass kicker, and it just doesn't come across that way to me. His punches aren't that great. His, his, his offense isn't violent. It's cute. And he's, he's a huge dude, man. He has that size, and I just want to see him look – I want to believe that he could kick my ass if I ever got in a fight with him, which I think he probably could, but I think the presentation has gotten a little bit better. Like I like the tights and stuff. Like his look yeah. is a little bit tougher looking, but no, I'm with you. The, the actual in-ring work is still nudely is, is the best way I'd put it. It's choreography and the, uh, versus fighting. And I just think I want a little more fight out of him versus no, but his punches are noodle punches and his yeah. drop kicks are floppy. Like, like there's just a, there's a lot of floppiness about the Velveteen dreams offense still. That's all the time we're going to give for this episode of Shake Them Ropes. I'm Jeff. You can follow me at Crap Game 13 You can follow Chris at Chris Novembrino. If you just want to follow the show, at Shake Them Ropes, all one word. You can join us on the Discord, voicesofwrestling.com slash Discord. There's a chat room for Shake Them Ropes. There's a few fans of the show in there that chat every so often. If you want to give comments in there, I go to the channel and I'll answer anything you want to hear. Uh, 
And Chris, I think, has been in there once. I'm not sure. I don't think he's a Discord I, guy. No, though. I'm just not a Discord guy. That's so it's fine. Like, yeah, it's just not like I honestly, it's like I feel like the more social networking sites you're on, it's just it becomes sensory overload. Twitter was Twitter's overwhelming for me. Um, and I that's the only thing I have. Um, which is at Chris Novembrino at DWATG. Don't worry about the government's my other show, don't worry.tv. Um uh, I want to thank everyone who's been signing up as a Patreon member. That's been really cool. Uh, Patreon.com slash DWATG. That's been uh, a nice, nice, refreshing uh, bit of information. You can also catch up on the All in the Family podcast at allinthefamilypodcast.com. See you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.